The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. At 8.30 this morning, Winifred Chapman, an employee, came to work at 10050 Cielo and found several bodies in the house, and immediately the police were notified. The tentative identification of the persons are as follows. Sharon Polanski, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and another man who is unknown. The identification was made by a friend and its tentative at this time. That is about what we have at this time in the preliminary investigation. Is there anything scrawled on the front door of that house in blood? I can't answer that question. Where were the bodies found? All in one room? No. Two of the bodies were found in the inside the house, uh, one in the vehicle, and two on the front lawn. Charles Manson, we all know who he is, and if you're anything like me, you've probably watched just about every documentary out there about him. As a kid, I remember my friends at school talking about this book called Helter Skelter and the Tate and LaBianca murders and it making a lasting impression on me, to the point where just seeing the cover of the book evoked fear inside me. It wasn't until years later that I realized the name of the book was in reference to a Beatles song. It was 50 years ago that Charles Manson assembled a group of young followers and set up a commune in Southern California. Mirroring the energy of the era, Manson, an ex-convict, became an aspiring musician who began preaching messages of peace and love. His charisma made it possible for him to attract young followers into his inner circle. But no one could have predicted that some of his peace-loving followers would turn into America's most horrifying group of cold-blooded killers. What I've often wondered about as I've followed various interviews with Charles Manson in prison is what happened to the other members of his family. And what kind of lasting impact had there been on them, having been part of his cult? Recently, we were fortunate to have been contacted by Fox for a rare interview with the youngest family member of the cult, Diane Lake. In anticipation for a new two-hour true crime special called Inside the Manson Cult, The Lost Tapes, based on a vast collection of footage interviews, and photos left behind after a filmmaker who had been given exclusive access to the Manson cult died in October 2016. Exclusive footage goes inside Spawn Ranch and shows how these members were brainwashed under Manson's influence. Diane Lake is among some of the very fascinating interviews included in this special. As I mentioned, 
Diane Lake was the youngest member of Charles Manson's cult family. At the ripe age of 14, Diane was welcomed into the Manson family with open arms after her parents gave her permission to live with them. Diane was affectionately known by the Manson family members as Snake, a nickname given to her by Charles Manson himself. Join me now as we hear a first-hand account from Diane Lake, learning about the events that unfolded in her life that would eventually lead her into the arms of one of America's most notorious criminals. You'll hear about her brave testimony against Charles Manson and the family, along with what she did following the trial to heal from her experiences. Hi, Diane. Hi, Tyler. How are you? I'm good. I actually just finished your audiobook yesterday. It was so interesting, and your narration was absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. I, you know, obviously, that's not my job. They gave me a few choices for other people to do the narration. It was like, no, I'll do it myself. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Of course, your book is fresh in my mind. There's a lot of things I'd like to ask you, but I know we don't have enough time, so we've condensed it down to a, to a few. <laughs> in my conversation with her, I was able to ask her some of the questions that had me reeling after reading her book, Member of the Family, My Story of Charles Manson, Life Inside His Cult, and The Darkness That Ended the 60s. I had so many questions about her childhood alone. I asked Diane to explain how her family made the transition from being the average blue-collar American family to nomads. My dad, back in Minnesota, they had bought a house, beautiful house. Life was good. Then my dad got this idea to shuck materialism. His knowledge of a mortgage and the interest I saw it on the paperwork somewhere, how much interest he was going to be paying over 30 years or 15 years or however many years it was. And it was just like, oh my gosh, you know, it really freaked him out. And so he traded our house for a 23-foot camping trailer. Moving from a house into a 23-foot camping trailer you have to get rid of everything then. Just suitcase full of clothes, basically, and a few prized possessions. So that was the first time that happened. Then, he wasn't a very mechanical guy, so he didn't really know about cars. Our car couldn't pull it, or our car broke down pulling it, not even out of the state. I asked Diane to tell us how her family ended up moving across the United States from Minnesota to California. She explained how her father had been an artist and it was his dream to attend Berkeley University. He always wanted to come to California and hang out with, you know, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and, you know, the beatniks of Berkeley and get his Master's of Art. And he left us, went to California, and then he, a couple years later wanted us back. And my mom gave up everything. We all moved out to California. 
you know, it was an, another two years that he had my mom basically doing the same thing to follow his dream. He did not want to come under capitalism. He didn't want to keep up with the Joneses. He didn't want to live like that. I think that their goal really was to get closer to God and just to really live on the earth as, you know, human beings without all the trappings of materialism. That was their thinking. And so that's how we ended up dropping out again and giving up everything for the second time. And so when we did move out here to California, Timothy Leary was expounding on LSD and marijuana, and my mom actually got turned on by the neighbors down the street. And she brought it home to my dad, and they started smoking and laughing, and then my dad offered me some marijuana at some point, and then also um, LSD. Diane then told us about how her family got introduced with a commune called The Oracle, which was like an underground newspaper. At some point, the members of The Oracle lost their lease, the newspaper ended up folding, and they moved in with Diane's family. It was at that point that Diane's dad and one of the other guys from the commune came up with the idea to do what Timothy Leary had been advocating, the exploration of the therapeutical potential of psychedelic drugs. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. It was then that her parents sold their home and purchased a used bread truck, which her father converted into a makeshift mobile home. They had decided they were going to drive down the coast of California and live off the land. We sold all of our stuff at a yard sale, and so we became hippies when I was 14. As Diane's family traveled down the coast of California, things didn't seem to be working out as well as they had imagined. Somewhere along the way, Diane met another traveler, and the two of them headed off to San Francisco. Keep in mind that Diane was only 14 years old and already on her own, without her family. After landing at the Hog Farm Commune, Diane's parents met Charles Manson. My mother gave him a picture of me. Charlie and the girls were going to be going to San Francisco. And I guess my mom thought, you know, this is my daughter. Keep a lookout for her kind of thing. At some point, Diane did reunite back with her family at the Hog Farm Commune, where she described being unwelcome. Because of her age, she was considered jailbait and members of the commune didn't want the police showing up and harassing people or arresting them for having sex with a minor. It was at that point that some friends uh, of the commune who didn't live at the commune, but they came and they took me and they introduced me to Charlie. The friends of the commune took Diane back to an abandoned house in Topanga, where the Manson family members had been squatting. So when I walked into the house in Topanga, they all knew me. It was very magical and astounding, but I felt very loved and adored from that moment on. And Charlie was fun and playful and ambitious. 
played the guitar pretty well, and the girls all admired and adored him. So I felt much more welcome then in that commune, which is how I thought of it. I felt much more comfortable in with Charlie and the girls than I did where my parents were living. What was it about Charles Manson that made you so committed to him and the family? I think it was the you know the the relationship that I had with the girls and with him, and there were you know there were some other men in the group, but you know he kind of took on the role of a leader. And I don't want to say father figure, but I suppose in my case that's really what he was. But he was a very tender and sweet and concerned person and lover in the beginning. And I needed somebody. I needed a place that I felt. I belonged, and he made me feel that. And he had that incredible, uncanny ability to read people and figure out what their weaknesses were, what their strengths were, what they needed, who he needed to be for them. He just had this incredible ability to provide whatever it was that you needed emotionally. Diane then told me, about what it was like in the beginning, living with Manson and the family. Got sucked in. It was fun, and we were, you know, traveling, and we lived on practically nothing but food and money and gas and stuff. Would you know, just come our way through other people, and he showed us how to do dumpster dives, you know, in the back of the grocery stores, and there was lots of food. The Helms Bakery guy would come by and give us Dale Bakery stuff. After squatting in several homes, they lived on a bus for a while before ending up at Spawn Ranch, a property owned by an 80-year-old farmer named George. Previously, the property was used for filming Western-themed movies and TV shows. The rancher allowed the Manson family to live there rent-free in exchange for work and sexual favors from the girls. At first, Diane recalls that she felt uneasy about being so far away from the rest of civilization. But soon after arriving, she and the other girls got to work cleaning up the dusty movie set. They stayed primarily in the saloon and in the jail, where they put mattresses on the floor. They dressed up in western costumes and would explore the property riding horses. Diane would often help out, looking after the children on the ranch, and also taking care of the horses. But the innocent fantasy world they had been living in was about to change. Months leading up to the Tate and LaBianca murders, Manson started talking to his followers about an impending apocalyptic race war, which he called Helter Skelter. As he preached to his followers about his prophecy, he gave them all knives and taught them how to use them. Manson had become frustrated that his musical efforts had failed and he told a family member that Helter Skelter was ready to happen. What happened that horrific night at the Tate home and the following day at the LaBianca home is something that we are all very familiar with. The details of how four of Manson's followers executed his explicit instructions on how to kill complete strangers has become a gruesome and historical crime of the century.
In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. While the police admitted they had no suspects in the Bel Air massacre, there were two more murders 15 miles away in the Silver Lake section of Los Angeles. Market owner Leo LaBianca and his wife Rosemary were found by their children stabbed and mutilated. Diane tells us how she reacted when she first heard about the slayings from the murderers themselves. Uh, I was uh, just torn up inside that these people that I had loved, both emotionally and physically, could do something like this. And then the way they were telling me about it, Tex was the first one to let me know that he had committed these murders and that Charlie had told him to do it. And it was, you know, maybe a week or two weeks later that the girls started sharing their experience about it. And the way they did it, 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 it seemed like they were almost like bragging and kind of gleeful that, you know, they'd been able to do this without remorse. It was shocking. And I was already scared after Tex told me. And the way he told me was really kind of in a, I perceived it as a threat. You know, like, this could happen to you. So I didn't run away. I stayed. Death Valley is extremely remote. It takes a lot of work to, to get not just to Death Valley, but to Barker Ranch, which was up the Golar Wash off the Panamint Range. And it's, you know... I've been there a couple times since and have been amazed at how arduous the journey is and and was back then when there was less people going up there. It was really a mining trail. Several months after the Tate and LaBianca murders, Diane was arrested with the family during a raid at the Barker Ranch. In December of the same year, Lake testified she knew nothing about the murders. After being befriended by a detective, Lake broke her silence and provided the district attorney with a plethora of incriminating evidence against Manson and the family. Diane had no involvement in the murders herself, Diane tells me what it was like testifying against Manson and the family while Charles also sat in the courtroom. I was terrified that I was going to hear his voice and that he was going to get back inside my head and tell me what to say. And I also was a little bit afraid that I would remember when I first fell in love with him. He was a bit of a jerk. 
And so one of the questions they asked me, you know, did you love Charles Manson? And it was like, you know, I guess so. And Charlie pipes in, you know, Snake loved everybody. Don't put it all on Mr. Manson. You know, and he was just playing to the crowd. And so I really saw how he was a puppeteer, just deflecting any guilt on him. So I really, I was stronger after that. I felt a great deal of relief finishing that trial. He wasn't representing himself at that point in time, though. I don't think so, no, because I either was one of the last or I was the last witness. I think he had already tried to be his own attorney, and I think they had let him for a certain amount of time. And then at some point in time, it was just like, this is turning out to be... A circus. Yeah, a circus. Yeah. At what point in time did you feel like you were no longer under a spell? I know in your book, you talked about hearing his voice and him talking to you in your head. I heard his voice, I mean, just telling me to do daily things, you know, turn left, turn right turn the light on, turn the light off. All of my thoughts, I could hear his voice giving me these instructions. And so it was at some point in the hospital that I stopped. And then the arresting officer took me in as a foster child and really gave me back my self-worth, went to school, learned how to play the flute. And that carried me through high school, playing in the the marching band and the jazz band. And it really gave me something else to latch onto. And I was feeling quite, you know, normal. And then the trial was a little bit of a setback. It was right in my face again. All of these people and what they had done and how I had manipulated myself and gotten under the spell and the things that he was wanting us to believe. I believed them. That he was Jesus Christ or that he could be. I think it, for me, did believe, but not quite as wholeheartedly as I think that he, you know, there was always this question of doubt. I was like a doubting Thomas. You know, there was always this, uh, well, it it might be true. I definitely took it under consideration. Where I had this epiphany recently that I think some of the other members of the family who were able to be manipulated to the point of killing people is that they believed him to a much greater degree than I ever did that he was Jesus and that there was going to be this helter-skelter, which was a type of apocalyptic episode. That was quite a revelation for me. What has it been like trying to heal and find your own identity separate from the Manson family after all these years? My biggest struggle really was having it be a secret and having it be a shameful secret. I did not want anybody to know. I I didn't want to be linked with the association, a Manson family member. But from writing this book and really delving into what happened and learning about cults, it really came to realize that I was a victim. I was. 
I've lived most of my life not feeling like a victim, but just not wanting to acknowledge that I was ever part of that. So now acknowledging it has made me feel more of a whole person and that I didn't do anything wrong. And I am so thankful to God for getting me through that horrible piece of history. I could have gone any number of ways and not be the person I am today. And I, I really am thankful and grateful to God for protecting me and even making the timing right for me to tell my story. After being taken in by Detective Gardner and his wife, Diane went back to school and eventually met her husband and became a mother. She became a teacher and today is a grandmother. As she mentioned, she struggled keeping the secret of her past from her friends and family, but decided to tell them the truth after an investigation into the Manson murders started to resurface. I told my kids back like in 2009 when Paul Dosty with his cadaver dog Buster alerted to human remains up at Barker Ranch. And he called me to let me know that he'd gotten permission to dig in those places that his dog had alerted and that if they did find human remains that it was all going to break open again and I didn't want my kids to find out through the media. I have three children, but my oldest was in college and the next one was in still in high school, but we felt like they were old enough to hear the truth. And, you know, my daughter thanked my husband, her, her dad for, you know, protecting me all those years and for loving me. Some of that is, was the hardest part for her to read. My boys have not read my book and I'm not really encouraging them to read it. My daughter did read it, though. My mother and my sister have read it, and my mother and my sister were just thrilled that my voice came through. I mean, you actually listened to the book with my narration, but for my mom and my sister, they just read the book, and they still heard my voice, which is fabulous writing on the part of my co-author, Deb. She really helped me through this whole process of reuniting that 14- to 16-year-old a shamed skeleton in the closet, black clouds over my head all these years. And then the community that I live in, I've lived in for over 30 years. And it's been a jaw dropper for a lot of those people because, you know, I've been going to church. I sing in the choir. I, I'm a retired special education teacher. And people are just like, what? You're kidding me. I can imagine. What? They can't, they just can't believe it. And yet, and they're also very thankful. And, you know, it, it's been very interesting to see people's reactions, but for the most part, they've been very good. You know, they tell me how brave I was. They felt bad, of course, but they know the end result. So many people know me that they didn't know that part. They know who I am, you know, who I am now. And so I've been able to share that past. My stepdad was a little upset with me, and he doesn't talk to me because he didn't want me to write this story, and I did write it, and I think he'll come around eventually. 
I was interested to find out from Diane what her mom's thoughts were after reading her book and learning what her perspective had been on her childhood. Oh, I mean, it, you know, it was bittersweet. She understands even more what I overcame. As I tried to explain in the book, she also knows that I had a lot to do with my dad and his dreams and her dreams too. They really did want to get closer to God. Later on, my dad had apologized and had said, you know, we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's really what happened. I mean, they, and my mom loved me, but because of this new way of thinking, and I was a very capable teenager, and I'd been a very capable kid. You know, anything I tried, I was able to accomplish, and teenagers think they know it all anyway. So she thought of me, you know, when we were living in the Hog Farm commune, she thought of me more as like a sister in this new culture than she thought of me as her daughter who needed more protection than, than they gave me. So it was hard for her. It was, it was really hard for her, but I also filled in lots of blanks for her. She'd like to write her own book. <laughs> I mean, my mom has been like my best friend my pretty much my whole life. I forgave them. And I understand how it all happened. And so, you know, I, I forgave my parents years ago, and my mom has always been my, my friend, my confidant, my counselor, whatever. I mean, I love my mom very, very much. One thing I wondered was if Diane had ever communicated with Charles Manson following the trial. No, never. No, and I was in the process of writing this book, I was willing. Because people ask me, would you, you know, would you like to talk to him, you know, and ask him some questions? And I was like, well, you know, I don't know if anything that I asked him, if he would, if I'd get an honest answer. I also asked Diane if she was ever in contact with anyone else from the Manson family. The only person that I saw after the trial was Barbara Hoyt. There was a freelance investigator. He's no longer living, but he contacted me and contacted Barbara, and he arranged a little sightseeing trip up to Barker Ranch. So it was the two of us and, you know, my husband and a few other people that were interested in the case, and we went up to Barker Ranch, and that was before it burned down. Having followed everything about the Manson family since I was a kid, I can't tell you what a profound moment it was to speak with Diane Lake. Hearing her perspective, on what it was like being swept away into a cult and her recovery afterward was remarkable. Diane demonstrated her courage at a very young age, feeling confident to travel alone without her parents, moving into the commune, and then later testifying against the family members she had grown to love. 
Many years later, she continues to show her bravery after realizing she had been a victim and finally was able to release the skeletons from her closet. Rediscovering her identity apart from the Manson family was a monumental achievement in itself. We wish Diane and her family all the best, and we want to thank her again for sharing her journey with us. Again, I want to remind you about the new two-hour crime special that will include Diane called Inside the Manson Cult, The Lost Tapes. Airing on Monday, September 17th, from 8 to 10, Eastern and Pacific Standard Time, on Fox. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E